Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, April 11th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. This week, Mercedes shares details of her conversation with astronaut Jeremy Hansen, who was chosen as the only Canadian crew member for NASA's groundbreaking Artemis II mission, which will be the most extensive in history. Next, it's an ambitious plan to create a hub to help Calgary's most vulnerable citizens using the now vacant Greyhound bus depot in the city's West Village. We get details on the project from Kelly Sundberg, the Associate Professor in the Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University. And finally, today is World Parkinson's Awareness Day. We discuss the symptoms experienced by those suffering from the disease, treatments currently available, and the latest research surrounding Parkinson's with Larry Gifford, President and Co-Founder of the Global Alliance to End Parkinson's Disease and host of the Curious Cast podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's. What do the charges against Donald Trump mean for U.S. politics? And what is Canada's role in the future of space travel? Those were the big topics on this weekend's episode of Global's The West Block. And joining us now to discuss it is host Mercedes Stevenson. Hi, Mercedes. Hi, how are you? Excellent, thank you. Hope you had a wonderful Easter long weekend. I did, thank you. And you? Very, very nice, thanks. And still eating the leftovers. But you, unfortunately, (laughs) had to put in a little extra work on the weekend. But you had what? I mean, if you're going to work, it's not such a hard job to uh, speak with Jeremy Hansen, the Canadian astronaut chosen for NASA's (laughs) next lunar mission. What did he have to say about the future of deep space exploration? And just, was it a nice chat overall? He seems like a great guy. He, you know, he's such um, a, a lovely human being, and I've had the chance to interview him a couple of times since he's become an astronaut. Um, he actually used to be a fighter pilot in the Canadian Armed Forces, so I, I know a lot of the folks who he trained with fairly well. Uh, and everyone will tell you that that nice guy you see on TV is the real deal. He is like that all of the time. He's a great person to send into space. Uh, just very positive, very, um, you know, people person, and very excited to, to be going we were really excited to be able to talk to him because when you get to talk to someone about, so what will you be doing as you orbit the moon <laughs> and come back and ask questions that are actually real about you know, when we're going to land on the moon or when we're going to actually be on Mars and uh, you know, it just, this is something that is likely to be within our lifetimes. And it sounds like on both, it, it really is potentially, um, especially with the moon landing, pretty imminent. Um, so it was fascinating to, to talk to him. It's really amazing that... Canada has been included on this mission because you think about um, the patriotism and sort of the nationalism that the Americans went to the moon with uh, back when they did that over 50 years ago. And to have a Canadian astronaut as one of the four selected is remarkable. We talked also about, you know, deep space and because that's what this is. they, They will... If they make this and go around the moon in a way that they are planning to, um, they will have traveled further than any human in human history, which is pretty remarkable. Um, so it's it's always, I don't know, I'm a bit of a space nerd, so I think it's kind of like inspirational when you get to talk to people who are doing just, uh, you know, th- this incredible dream um, that everyone sort of thought about has crossed their mind. You could not get me into a small space capsule to launch me <laughs> around the moon, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But you love the idea um, of what it means really for, for human achievement, for science, uh, and, and for the future, just the ability to be able to do those things. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking, Mercedes, I'm a bit of a space nerd myself as well, and beyond the mission slated for fall of, of next year, the impact it'll have, and I'm going to draw a, a, an interesting analogy, I think anyway, it, from the sports world, in that in Canada we're all hockey all the time. Then a handful of years ago, the Toronto Raptors uh, you know, made some real noise and won the championship. All of a sudden, 
Canadian kids are signing up for basketball. There's interest. We have more Canadian players now in the NBA than ever before. Um, we have a whole, since you and I grew up, uh, Mercedes, in the 80s, in the uh, early 90s, the space program still ticking along, and then they shuttered the uh, shuttle program. Now Canadian kids can not only mm-hmm. see that this is a possibility, but one of our own is going where no one has gone before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you think about it, and we, we heard about people going to the moon, but it, it never occurred to you as a kid that like that might happen again, that there is a desire to do that. And, and um, I thought that uh, Jeremy Hansen said something really interesting. He was talking about how space brings people together, um, that, that they are you know, so many brilliant Canadian scientists um, and, and people who work around space and in the private sector and all these different areas, physicists, and chemists and, you know, doctors, and they all have these brilliant ideas. And they're kind of off, you know, doing um, small, brilliant things. But when you bring them together under the auspices of space, it just has this incredible influence of, of people being excited about achieving something beyond. You know, it's sort of this uh, adventurous, exploratory human spirit and that it really allows people to achieve great things. And he said, you know, that he, he is where he is. Um, which is very you know generous because obviously he's an amazing person. He's capable of great things to be there. But he said it's really about all these other Canadians who came together across the country with these ideas and these programs that have allowed Canada um, to be in this position. And there's actually been a big debate in Canada over whether uh, around the space uh, sort of community whether they should actually be focusing on astronauts. I don't know if, if uh, your listeners know this, but we only have four, really? not a lot. Yeah. Very small astronaut program. Uh, so some folks said, why are we focusing on astronauts? Perhaps we should focus more on the technology, the payloads, things like Canada Armed to contribute to space. Um, Jeremy Hansen seems to be the walking endorsement for why we should put more towards astronauts. But when people are saying, well, we're just kind of going to the space station and back. Um, so I think there'll be really interesting discussion about how many resources get put into the space program now. And if perhaps we're no longer in this position of being told that uh, it sort of has to be one or the other to, to be effective. And it's a whole new dream for Canadian kids, maybe you could be the one who goes and lands on Mars. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love it. All right. From Canada and bringing people together to the U.S. and driving them apart. (laughs) (laughs) You also talked about Donald Trump on the show on the West Block, the charges he's facing, 34 felony charges. What did your experts say about Trump's potential run for president in 2024? Do they think this is going to affect it? They basically don't. Um, And it was really interesting because we had Rick Wilson, who's the founder of the Lincoln Project. Uh, He's a Republican, uh, but he's been super, super critical of Trump. And he has uh, created, you know, some of these videos and ads that are very powerful and got a lot of traction that are anti-Trump. And then we had Sean Spicer, who is President Trump's uh, former communications advisor. So he knows him really well. And they were kind of laughing because they said they they do not agree on a lot. But they both agreed that... um, what the effect of these sort of charges is, is that it hardens people's position they already tend to hold on Donald Trump. So for the pro-Trumpers, it is sort of hardening their belief that this is the state targeting Donald Trump, um, that he's a martyr and he's a victim, and that these are all made-up charges. If you don't like Donald Trump, then you say this is more evidence. Uh, you know, as, as Rick Wilson put it, he said, no one is surprised anymore when they hear Donald Trump paid a porn star. No one says... Uh, did it happen or not? They just say, you know, well, was it or wasn't it illegal? They also both agree that this set of charges is actually relatively weak because it typically is 
and something that would be a felony. But there are more charges coming from other investigations. Uh, they both really seem to think the stuff related to taking top secret documents and removing them was potentially the most dangerous to Trump. Now, obviously, there's going to be, as uh, you know, they were putting it, sort of this constant drumbeat of more and more criminal charges over the presidential campaign uh, for Trump that, that cast a shadow perhaps for undecided general election voters, but they both had the same view that this really is not um, a make or break for Donald Trump. In fact, if anything else, it's given him a lot of oxygen and potentially an advantage over any other Republican candidate. They both think he will be the Republican nominee for president. Um, And they both say that if the Democrats are going to beat Donald Trump, they will have to do it in, in ways that are not related to these charges. Just talking about them will not be enough to defeat him. Just before we let you go, Mercedes, I want to ask you about this, and this is something that will affect so many Canadians, and that's the merger between Rogers and Shaw. You, you talked about on your program the competition and, and where we are left now with this merger, getting the green light and going ahead. Yeah, so it's um, it's going ahead, and initially it was something the government was kind of uh, concerned about doing it, and part of that was a result of just the, the lack of competition in Canada and being worried about cell phone prices, and I'm sure that I don't need to tell your listeners, because we all know if you pay your cell phone bill, we pay some of the highest rates in the world. Um, the government says that they have come up with a formula that will ensure that Canadians don't end up paying more money as a result of this merger, that there are uh, conditions that will bind the companies. I, I spoke to two economists about it. Uh, They essentially said less competition generally doesn't result in lower prices. If the companies follow all of the rules on this merger, uh, perhaps the lower sort of cost structure of Videotron, which is, uh, we have them out here because they're they're in Quebec, so a lot of Ottawa folks have the Quebec phone number to get the lower price of Videotron. That could potentially bring some prices down. But sort of this almost monopolistic approach in Canada in banks, airlines, and cell phones uh, means that we have really high high prices um, and that it's, it's a concern for consumers because it is so much higher than in other parts of the world. So it'll all kind of depend to some degree on whether or not the companies involved uh, follow through. That would be, you know, uh, Rogers mainly, who's going to be the huge player in this in terms of um, what they have promised that they will do. They didn't express a ton of faith in that. They said in the past some companies had violated that. There are some pretty serious sanctions if they do violate it, if the government forces them. Um, So certainly lots to be seen here about how it all plays out. We'll be following along with you. Thanks so much for joining us as always, Mercedes. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Could the only Greyhound station in the west of downtown, the lone Greyhound station that is sitting empty, be used to help shelter Calgary's vulnerable population. A Mount Royal professor plans to take this proposal to City Council next week. With details on the idea, we are joined by Kelly Sundberg, Associate (coughs) Professor in the Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies at MRU. Good morning to you, Professor. Yeah, good morning to you both. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you for joining us this morning. Can you tell us in your own words about your proposal? Well, uh, I should say Erica Hansen, who's a, a local uh, urban designer, uh, came up with the the the, the actual proposal uh, back in 2021 at the uh, Alberta Recreation and Parks Conference. Um, but in essence, the the proposal is, is this: is it's a it's an empty building right now. It's uh, in a great location because it's not in anyone's backyard, as you will. And the idea is to have. Um, a facility 
that would act as a bridge between the the province currently has their um, uh, recovery-oriented system of care, which is a wonderful program. Uh, but it's, we need we need programs prior to that. So I'm not proposing another homeless shelter. I'm not proposing another uh, uh, you know emergency shelter or anything like that. The proposal is to have a place when people leave these shelters in the morning to go to, mm. and at the uh, one location. So in essence, a, a community campus for uh, individuals who who are living rough or who who need help. And at this location would be a multitude of uh, health and social service, as well as um, criminal justice professionals that can perhaps help them deal with uh, any criminal warrants they might have outstanding to talk to them about getting back on track, uh, addressing the addiction, addressing the, uh, the, the traumas of their life so that they're in one place, they can build, grow, uh, they're not on our transit systems. They're they're not uh, causing problems in the community. Um, it's it's a it's a thought of trying to find one place where they can get all the services and hopefully uh, move toward that uh, road to recovery. I think that's a brilliant idea. It seems respectful and helpful at the same time. What's the response been from the city? Um, well, it's, I've had interesting resp- uh, mixed responses. I've actually received calls from other city count- city councillors from other major municipal uh, governments in, in Canada, which is quite amazing. Um, there's been some. I, I would say it's 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 it's. I, I can't read it. It's, I, I have had a response, uh, but uh, there's there's been mixed messages. I mean, at the end of the day, um, the. When we, if we think of the challenges we have in our streets, uh, with with street level drug use, with uh, street level crime, with social disorder, these are all symptoms. At these are at are going to be at our transit stations, in our libraries, any public parks, any public space. The reason why we're having this increasing concern is that uh, there's nowhere for people who are, are challenged with uh, with life. I don't know how to say it better. I mean, a vulnerable population, but there's there's lots of vulnerable populations in our communities. Uh, this this cohort of individuals who um, unfortunately have are battling with mental health and addiction for the most part, they need a place to go where they can get help. And when you're when you're high uh, and someone says, we need you to come back next Thursday at four o'clock for an appointment with mm-hmm. Dr. So-and-so, well, this you might as well say we need you to report to Mars uh, next year. Like it makes no sense. So we need to have this bridge where, in essence, we're, we would be creating the first ever uh, emergency room or emergency ward intensive care unit for addiction and mental health, so that we can get people the help, get them out of the the tragic the tragic state of of that crisis towards recovery the key point to this is to give them a place where they can have some human dignity if we were all living on the street and uh or if we tried to live on the street for a week we didn't have a shower we didn't brush our teeth we ate food out of dumpsters we didn't get a good night's sleep as we're always told get a good night's sleep eat proper these sort of things if we go day by day week by week month to year where we're not getting good sleep, not getting nutrition, where we're not even changing our clothes, we're not making good decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so keeping that cycle of addiction and the exasperating the mental health is just makes it worse the longer people are out there. So we need a place where people can simply have a shower by themselves, regain some human dignity, 
um, and start moving toward that recovery. And in that process, we can have all sorts of services to help them deal with the challenges that arose during that period. And they're going to be safe. <clears throat> and more importantly, um, I think that uh, it's it's a means for for our community to finally transition people from living on the Bow uh, Rivers banks or the Elbow Rivers banks or in our parks. As a society, we should just say this is enough is enough. The Greyhound Station, I think, is a great location. Uh, even if it, there are plans to rebuild it, I think, well, why don't we use it until it needs to be rebuilt? Like the, the, the land is, mm-hmm. the land is uh, toxic right now. It has to be remediated. So in the meantime, we have a building. We used it during COVID for an emergency. Exactly. I'm thinking that this is a little more of a pressing issue than uh, COVID was. In my just, life. I want to interject here, uh, Professor, because we did have a text from Dominique who uh, mentioned, you know, you mentioned the ground Professor, but this uh, texter says, I set up the vaccination clinics that were in that building at the Greyhound Station. The building needs a lot of work to accommodate people that's in serious disrepair at this point. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm sure it does. Uh, this will cost, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying to do this on the cheap or, or not to, you know, that this should be a barrier. We're spending thousands of dollars every time a paramedic, a fire department, the firefighters, the fire department, or the police respond to overdoses on our streets every day or when someone's brought to uh, the emergency ward. Um, This is always costing us money. Yeah, we need to, wherever this is, is we're going to have to make somewhere fit for purpose. So it will be expensive and we will need to be... uh, uh, fixed up to a uh, to a level that it can be used for for service in this population, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think we should spend that money. I think that's money well spent, and it's money wisely spent because we already are paying for this challenge in our community. We're every time that uh, someone has to have the nine one one called and the ambulance or the the fire department police come to deal with them. This costs us thousands of dollars there's some individuals who cost the taxpayers through because they're responded to so much there are some individuals who have to be recovered multiple times a day this is tens of thousands of dollars for one individual not to mention the cost of court not to mention the cost of of health uh, the way if they, when they do go to the emergency ward for emergency care so simply put i'm saying we're spending the money already let's just put this in in a place that we can get people all the care they need in one spot, uh, get them off of the streets, into a warm shower, into a safe place. So, Because the alternative right now is where, what's currently happening, and that's people living in the bushes. And that, to me, is insanity. This sounds like a really, really interesting concept and idea. We'll follow it. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Professor. Really appreciate the chat. Thanks, Sue and Addy, and I hope everyone in Calgary has a wonderful morning. Thanks, you too. Kelly Sundberg is an Associate Professor in the Department of Economics, Justice, and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University. The number of people with Parkinson's disease is expected to double by the year 2040 because of our aging population. Where are we when it comes to research and treatment for those living with Parkinson's disease? Joining us on this Parkinson's Awareness Day is Larry Gifford, National Director of Talk Radio for Chorus Entertainment, host of When Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast, and president and co-founder of the Global Alliance to End Parkinson's Disease. Morning, Larry. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, can you give us a little backstory for you and your life? When were you diagnosed with Parkinson's and and sort of how did that all kind of come together for you? Sure. Yeah, I was diagnosed in 2017, uh, but I can now trace back symptoms of almost 17 years before that to the year 2000. Um, And it started with my walk. 
uh, I just sort of had a sort of a draggy walk, a drop foot, and uh, it was simply clomping all over the place and couldn't keep like the, a good pace, a good gait. Um, and I just thought I was getting older and out of shape and overweight. <laughs> I had a lot of things to blame it on. I, I, Parkinson's was the farthest thing from my mind. And then my, I lost the ability to use most of the uh, dexterity of my right hand. The fine motor skills went away. Uh, so I was using my left hand for things and just not even realizing it. And then and, and after accumulating six or seven of these uh, different you know, annoying little things, uh, I started to get into a tremor, and the tremor really woke me up and sent me to the doctor, and the doctor um, sent me to a neurologist, and the neurologist said, yeah, it looks like you probably have Parkinson's. In- incredible, uh, Larry, and it's interesting because when we think Parkinson's these days, the face we attach to it is the Canadian legend Michael J. Fox. I want to ask you about the importance of of the knowledge that we that we get from somebody like a Michael J. Fox, and I was uh, just reading a, an article over the weekend, uh, USA Today, about Neil Diamond, who said, you know, when he first found out that he had Parkinson's in 2018, he had a huge denial, and now he's fully accepted it and wants to learn more and 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 spread the word. So, if you can talk about that, the importance of having a face like a Michael J. Fox and somebody like a Neil Diamond. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, when I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed before Neil Diamond. Uh, he, Michael J. Fox was the first thing that came to mind, and Muhammad Ali. Uh, those were the two icons that I, that I could think of, the only two people I knew that had Parkinson's. Um, and, but I, yet, yet I still thought of it as kind of like an old man's disease, but they were young when they, they were diagnosed. Um, so I don't know why I still associated it with that. Um, but there is sort of this stigma around it that it's an old white man's disease. Well, that's totally wrong. Um, it, it is an equal opportunity um, degenerative disease. Uh, it's, it doesn't matter where you live or how much money you make or if you're a man or a woman or what religion you are or where you live in the world. It's, it affects, uh, affects everybody just the same. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, when you get that diagnosis, it is sort of just shock to your system. And it takes a long time to, to really accept it. I mean, there's, you sort of go through the whole stages of grief because you had this life that you were, you had dreams and you had, you had a plan and the past and like this kind of throws a wrench into all that. So Larry, when it comes to treatments, I mean, I know there's obviously there's no cure for it at this point and, and there are some treatments, but do they really sort of help you or do they just help you get through the day? What is that like for you? Well, so yeah, so the treatments, um, the, the, the gold standard treatment, Levodopa, uh, has been around since the late 60s, 1960s, um, and it's still um, the best we've got. Um, there, there are, you know, and this is a treatment of symptoms, most mostly motor symptoms. And then, then like you, I take like uh, 16 to 18 of those a day. I take them every two hours. Um, and then, uh, then there's other pills you have to take for you know, the, you know, your depression or anxiety or for sleeping because these are all these are all things that people have to deal with that really aren't on the surface. There's so many non-motor issues that we're dealing with. Um, as people with Parkinson's, most people just think of the tremor, but the tremor is usually the, the least of people's worries. All right, we're tight for time, Larry, but I want to ask you this. On this day... When we recognize Parkinson's, when we talk about Parkinson's, what can the average Canadian do to, to push this forward to help find a cure or some incredible treatments that might be coming down the pipeline to move that ahead? 
Yeah, well, I mean, because the number of people with Parkinson's is going to double in, the, in, in between now and, and 2040. So, what we what we need to do is educate ourselves. So you can go to to worldparkinsonsday.com, and there's lots of information out there, that, and you can share uh, you know, a, a meme, or you can uh, just learn about Parkinson's yourself and donate to your local organization. You know, like Parkinson's Canada is a great opportunity to. To donate, each province has uh, different organizations you could donate to. Uh, I would pick your favorite and uh, donate because without without raising awareness, we won't we won't raise enough money to to do enough research to do anything about Parkinson's. So uh, we just need people to wake up a little bit, add some urgency to this cause, uh, and uh, let's try to figure out a way to stop it before it onsets. Thanks so much for sharing your story, Larry. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. WorldParkinsonsDay.com is the website. That was Larry Gifford. He's the National Director of Talk Radio for Chorus, President and Co-Founder of the Global Alliance to End Parkinson's Disease.